Thank you, Paul and Joanna. What a wonderful morning. We're ready to go home. Don't clap at that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just mean it was good. <laughs> you could only wish. God is truly good, is He not? And these, His ways have, uh, have revealed His heart and His love for us. So we worship that this morning. Today we are continuing through our Invisibles series, looking at some people who you haven't really heard of quite as much. Today you probably have heard of him a bit, but uh, they do change the course of the narrative dramatically. And this week we're going to shift gears. We've been in the Old Testament today and next Sunday morning we'll be in the New Testament. And so it's kind of a, a, a bit of a, a jarring thing. We're going to explore this morning the life and the testimony of Silvanus better known to us as Silas. Silas seems to be the Greek form of the Latin Silvanus. It kind of goes through a few iterations in there. It doesn't really matter. They think they're the same person. He's rather, he is a, kind of a minor character in the gospel, in the story of, of, of the growth of Christianity, but he makes a very important contribution in the city of Philippi and in the rest of the New Testament. It's pretty easy to overlook him, um, but we are not going to do that today. No letters bear his name. He didn't write a, in, you know, a letter that, that we know of. Um, in the places he ministered, the result was a focus on Christ, not himself. He doesn't seem to have this big overbearing uh, personality. He had about him, I think, a fragrance of Christ that, that gave life to other people. And they found themselves, after coming in contact with him, loving Christ more and more. We have a lot to learn <laughs> from Silas. He appears to be a Hellenistic Jew, which means he adopted a little more of the, of the Greek culture. He probably spoke Greek. Uh, there were two kinds of Jews in the early church. There were, there were the Hellenistic Jews and then the Hebrew Jews, the more Jewish, um, strictly Jewish. But it appears he's also a Roman citizen. Paul claims in Acts 16 that they are both Roman citizens. And so we have a Roman citizen. He lived among the disciples, the 12. He lived among the apostles. And what's fascinating about Scripture is that more is said about Silas than a lot of the other actual 12 disciples. He does appear... He doesn't appear in the gospel accounts themselves, but he does appear in this fledgling church, and he has a fairly significant role there. And we hear of him first as an important member of the church led by the apostles that was in Jerusalem. So, the story of Silas in the New Testament. How about some background? After Paul's amazing change of heart on the road to Damascus, he meets Barnabas. And Barnabas kind of introduces Paul, kind of makes it, the church say, oh, you can trust him. This is the new and improved Paul. He's not out to get us. It's okay. And the two of them would eventually go on a missionary trip through Asia Minor, through modern-day Turkey. And, and after they traveled all over them, proclaim, uh, that area, they, they proclaimed uh, the name of Christ. They performed miracles. They took the truth. They planted churches. Um, and many people believed in Jesus. And so after that, they returned to Antioch, and when they got to Antioch, they were kind of reporting on what happened. They refreshed themselves, but up in Jerusalem, up meaning high because it's of higher elevation, down south, but up in Jerusalem, there's a controversy brewing. 
You got all these new believers in Asia Minor. How Jewish do they have to become to be really Christian? Do they have to be circumcised? And it was a pretty important debate. And so Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem to enter this discussion. And it says, it's, we know it as the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts 15, they discuss it, they debate it. The text says, even with heated debate. I mean, it was, this was, this was an, a big deal. And so after they make their decision, which is, no, you don't have to be, but it would be nice, but no, you don't have to be, they sent Paul and Barnabas back up to the church at Antioch to report. But to authenticate that message, they sent along two people with them. Judas, not that Judas, he's dead, remember, and Silas. And they go back with them, um, our Silas, in Acts 15, verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. So by the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas decide then it's time to go revisit these churches. Let's go see how they're doing. We've invested in them, and, and what are we going to do? And so then the part of the story of Barnabas that Brother Andrew failed to deal with, because it's, it's the trickier part of Barnabas, you know, he has a fight with Paul. And they, they can't get along on the decision because Paul, Barnabas wants to take along John Mark, but, but John Mark had deserted them. He was a, you know, he kind of left them. So Paul's like, no, I'm not taking him. He, he wasn't faithful. So they split company. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. He didn't finish with us. They had such a sharp disagreement, they were ticked at each other, that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of God. If Andrew avoids the, the, the issue, I can avoid the issue. We're going to move on. Let's, they had a disagreement, but it was all in the will of God, and, and it worked out for the best. Because of that split, Paul recruits Silas, to go with him. And so off they go on what is, becomes known as Paul's second missionary journey. They start in Antioch. There is a map. They start in Antioch, so they're quite a bit north of Jerusalem. They head up to, to, through Tarsus, Derby, Lystra. In Lystra, they pick up Timothy. He begins to join it, and then they're off through Asia Minor, over to Troas, and then they decide by the leading of the Spirit uh, to head across um, the, um, the Aegean Sea um, to Asia, I mean, to Europe, sorry, they're in Asia, uh, to Europe, and so they go across to Greece. And so throughout this trip, Paul and Silas are side by side, most of the way. When they get to Philippi, they get beaten and thrown in jail, and they witness the conversion of the jailer and his family. And then they go to Thessalonica, where they have to flee in the middle of the night, and they go to Berea. And Paul and Silas part ways in Berea. Um, after the Jews from Thessalonica follow them down, they're going to stir up trouble in Berea too. 
um, they decide, you know, Paul says, Silas, you and Timothy stay here, and I'm going to go on to Athens. Silas and Timothy eventually catch up with Paul, according to the text, in Corinth. And the last mention of Silas in Acts is in chapter 18, verse 5, which says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Silas vanishes from the record. Is there more to the story? Well, probably. If Silas has a reputation as a significant leader in the early church, then why does he drop out at this point in the second missionary journey? Well, a lot of scholars believe there there is more to the story. They believe Silas is Silvanus, who does get mentioned later on. Paul uses the word. He he greets in in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He uses uh, Silvanus to greet the church in Thessalonica, which would make sense. Um, and then in 2 Corinthians 1.19, it says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among, us, among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy. was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. So we know they're preaching in Corinth together. And then probably from Corinth, Paul writes 1 and 2 Thessalonians, not too far apart. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy had been there a while. They know everybody. In 2 Thessalonians, it says the same thing. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father. The final mention of Silas in the New Testament is in 1 Peter. Not in a greeting. That is part of the text, part of the story. 1 Peter 5.12 says, With the help of Silas, Peter's writing, or is he? With with whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Peter wrote this letter how? The opening phrase says, with the help of Silas. Silas helped Peter compose the letter of we know of today is First Peter. In the first century, it's very common for people to have a scribe or an amanuensis to come along and help them. They, they helped at various levels. You could just kind of edit it. You could proofread it. Um, sometimes they gave their scribes a lot more leeway. And we don't know how much latitude Peter gave Silas in the writing this, but it says he was a faithful brother. He may well have been the leading man, you know, among brethren, that's mentioned earlier in this text, which means he could have had some significant freedom in helping Peter compose the letter of 1 Peter. But he doesn't flee the scene. He's continuing to serve the church. That's the main idea. So, the story of Silas in Philippi, the most famous incident in his life, takes place in the city of Philippi. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 16. We're going to explore this text a little more in depth. It's told there, after casting out an evil spirit out of a slave girl, Paul and Silas get arrested and thrown into prison for probably what we would call disturbing the peace. And the two men were beaten. They were put in jail. They were put under close guard for nothing more really than preaching the gospel. If you're Paul and Silas, 
and you're in jail at midnight, what do you do? Well, we know what they did. They started singing and praying. We pick up the story in verse 25 of Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, they've been forced to undergo beating. They're in jail. It's the middle of the night, midnight. It's dark. Let's be honest. Most of us would be doing what? Moaning and complaining and crying out in pain. It hurts, man. They hit me there. They were not cursing their enemies. They were singing. And then God sends along an earthquake. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. If they escape, he's dead. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Nobody's left. Why? It seems that they were so caught up with the presence of God in that prayer and the, and the singing of worship that they were, that they were dumbfounded. And so the jailer comes to faith and his family and washes the wounds of Paul and, and, and all of this by candlelight. It's an impressive scene. Now, if you were to dramatize this scene, who's center stage? Paul. He's kind of in control. He's the big personality. Silas might be hard to find in that scene. Always a step behind, always off to the side, probably in the shadows. Paul was the one who had banished the evil spirit that got them thrown in there in the first place. It all started, you know, it's kind of Paul's fault. He was always kind of loud, impossible to overlook, brilliant, courageous, passionate. He would later write this of his, his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach. I've got to do this. I'm driving my passion. He would also say in 2 Corinthians 5, if we're out of our mind, as some say, <laughs> it is for God. If we're in our right mind, eh, it's for you. Paul's a big personality. And he knew that many times people wondered if he'd actually lost his mind. What are you doing? But he always insisted, I must tell the story of Jesus. So we're not surprised to find Paul in jail. But Silas, really? The kind of quiet guy behind the scenes? But here's a, here's a more important question. Why only Paul and Silas? I mean, we know there's other people here. We know Timothy's there. We know Luke's there. They didn't get thrown in jail. And there's a church in Philippi. Why did nobody from the church get thrown in jail too? The only explanation can be, I think, that Silas got himself in trouble because he was being selfless. He was going to stick by Paul no matter what, and he was a servant with a servant's heart. He was determined to go wherever God sent him, and he was determined to serve wherever God opened the doors. And Silas stood by Paul 
and went through every difficulty with him. And he got himself in trouble because of that attitude. I'm going to serve Christ wherever he puts me. So there he is, the middle of the night. It's midnight in the jail. And what do you do? Verse 25, at midnight, they're praying and singing hymns to God. Think about that. You discover your theology at midnight. Until then, your theology is all theoretical. And when midnight comes, you discover the difference between theory and reality. I used to think, you know, I went to seminary for four years to learn my theology. It's not exactly true. I kind of knew what I believed before I went. But those four years of, of systematic theology and Greek and Hebrew and Bible exposition and church history and world missions, it did give me a depth and a broad perspective. I suppose looking back, I would say in seminary, I learned how much I didn't know. But I was given the tools to learn more when I was out on my own. And the one thing I did learn was to love the Scriptures deeply. But when midnight comes, you discover the difference between all of that theory and reality. When you graduate from seminary, I don't know, usually you think you know everything. At least that's what I thought. That was part of the education, you know? I sat in, in Charles Ryrie's senior theology class where you had a topic. Today the topic, I don't know, angels. And you had, he could just stand there and call on you. And, and you had to be prepared to define what it was, where the scripture. It was like, oh man, it was called, we called it Ryrie Roulette. <laughs> and you come out of that, though, learning to think theologically. How do you know that, that Satan is, is a personality. Prove it to me. And we would have to do that. I'm going off on a tangent here. I can do it. Well, because he's got, he's got the evidence of personality. He thinks, he speaks, he reacts. He, you know, that's how you know. But when you get out of seminary, you have definite opinions about everything. Even though your depth of knowledge is a lot more shallow than you think. But I say that with a bit of a smile because it's good for young people to think that they can conquer the world. Where would we be without some young bucks to challenge the status quo, to make us feel uncomfortable, to push the envelope a little bit? I like it when I meet young people with big dreams about what they want to do for God. In this fragile and unpredictable world, we need the fire of optimism that cries out, I can take that city for God. That's what we need. So God bless young people who believe that all things, all things actually are possible. And we who have no time or patience for those and ask questions, well, perhaps we should think about that for a little while. Paul was the first kind. I can capture that hill. He was a force of nature, a man possessed by the idea, this one thing I do. And he went to preach Christ wherever his name had not been preached so that everyone could hear of the saving value of a Savior. 
But it wasn't an easy road. And here in Acts 16, it's not an easy road. It's rough again. And no doubt these two look like a mess that night after getting beaten up. Set, the text says they're in stocks. They're under close guard. They're with people. You know, if, if they're way in the deep parts of the prison, the other criminals there are like, got to be thinking, you know, these guys aren't normal criminals here. What's going on? And so I ask again, what do you do at midnight? Well, it all depends on your theology, which you generally do not discover until midnight. At that point, you can't walk over to your library and pull out your Greek text and say, what do I do when I'm in prison? Well, let me review my, my vocab cards. What am I supposed to do? That big stack of notes from Bible class. You don't have access to a computer, you know? Well, let's put it on Facebook, see if I can get some help, or, or I'm going to tweet this and see what Twitter says. You find out at midnight what's real in your life and what is purely theoretical. I recently read about Major Ian Thomas, founder of Torchbearers International, and he mentioned a saying that was fundamental to his understanding of the Christian life. He said this, go where you're sent, stay where you're put, and give what you've got. That's Silas. It throws light in the darkness of that prison cell in Philippi where he's singing and praying at midnight. So finally, what can we learn from Silas? Three things. Guess what the first one is? Go where you're sent. If you'd listen to that statement, you, your first reaction is there's a bit of a geographical component. Abraham called by God from Ur of the Chaldees to come to the land by faith, not knowing where he was going. There is some place, but only God knew where it was. He was always on his way to the promised land. And if you explore the story of Silas, you can see specifically God called him from Turkey to Greece. It was very clear. And he crosses the Aegean Sea and he ends up in Philippi. And he begins to preach the gospel and win people to Christ. He's accompanying Paul on this journey to spread the gospel. You see, the where all this happens was totally dependent on God and his leading. That's why he wasn't thrown for a loop when he ends up that night in jail. The great physical ordeal of enduring a beating by the authorities, it didn't matter. While we don't need to sensationalize that, we don't need to downplay it either. When Paul, years later, told Timothy to do what? To endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He knew what he was talking about. Silas knew exactly what that meant. And if we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we know our God's in control. And there was nothing easy about being accused of disturbing the peace, being public, publicly disgraced and mocked and vilified. It's not pleasant, I don't imagine, to be beaten or thrown in prison alongside actual criminals. And having your legs in stocks meant you couldn't move, but it also means laying down's a problem. 
So what do you do in that situation? It all depends on your theology. If you don't believe that God's in control, you're going to get bitter, you're going to get angry and discouraged. If you don't believe a God who numbers the hairs of our heads, you may think, ah, something terrible has happened to me. That's what he's done. But if we believe in a God who is sovereign, who has a deep love for us, then it's not an accident. And if that's true, then your reaction is going to be quite different. You're going to pray, and you're going to sing hymns at midnight. We find the key to the phrase, go where you're sent, in the word sent. It means that in every situation in life, higher hands are at work. They're leading us from where we are right now to where we need to be. And at many times, those higher hands lead us to a place we don't want to go to. And yet we can learn what we really believe. Most of you, unfortunately, don't know Ray Beecher, didn't know him. As he faced his own death, his theology shone brightly. What an amazing testimony. And Les Smith and Georgia Childs, and even those struggling today, Mary Jean and other people I could list, but I won't because I don't think they want me to. Talk to people on the patio. Find out what God is doing and what the struggles are. Because we have people of faith who have carried their theology even to the grave with joy and with grace. And many are being carried even today See, you don't learn theology at midnight. You discover it. Have I said that enough? You find out what you truly believe. And Paul and Silas sang hymns. They prayed, which is the true meaning of go wherever you're sent. You go even though it probably isn't in your plan, but you go singing and praying and testifying of the goodness of God. Second lesson from Silas' life, especially in Acts 16, is this. Stay where you're put. That means you go and serve the Lord wherever you happen to be, even though it might not be your first choice. That's why they could sing at midnight. He knew that God had sent him to the prison to bear witness to his faith. And Paul and Silas sang, and the prisoners listened. They had no idea an earthquake was around the corner. Verse 26, suddenly there was an, a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. The doors flew open. They're free. Who knew a well-timed earthquake was on its way and one not so strong that it destroyed the prison, you know? I mean, these are rock things. I don't know what the prison's like. Who knew they would very soon lead this Philippian jailer and his whole family to faith in Christ? Verse 29, the jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. 
The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. He got baptized. He didn't even go to class 101. How dare he? (laughs) All of that is hidden from them. As far as they knew at the moment, they would be in prison for a few days, maybe a few weeks. I don't know. They were going to pull out the Roman citizen card soon. But you didn't know how it was going to happen. You see, you are where you are because God wants you there. And when he wants you somewhere else, you'll be somewhere else. My point is that Silas wasn't praying and singing. He wasn't asking for some great miracle. He just bore witness to the goodness of God in a very difficult situation. And that's what God calls you and I to do. Stay where you're put. Doesn't mean you have to passively accept all circumstances of life. Woe is me, you know, in little Eeyore. No. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to change things if you can. But it does mean that you believe deep down in your soul that you are where you are because God put you there. And when he wants you somewhere else, he'll make it very clear. Third, give what you've got. They're not just sitting around quietly in jail. (laughs) Evidently, they sang and they prayed loud enough that everybody could hear them. Amazed that these two guys in stocks have been beaten and roughed up. They're in jail at midnight. How can they be singing? And everybody else got to discover their theology at the same time. You know, there's a Hebrew word that pops up in the Old Testament especially when God calls somebody to a special task. The word is henaini. Henaini, it means here I am. Here I am. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to do what you want me to do, God. What can I do for you? You see, it's what the slave says to the master. It's what the little boy says to his father. It's what believers say to our God. Hanani, here I am. Abraham said it in Genesis 22. Jacob said it in Genesis 31. Moses said it in Exodus 3. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 6. One writer put it this way, in every case, the person whom God called simply replied with the Hebrew word Hanani, the word of the servant, which means here I am, available, ready to serve, What may I do for you? When God calls us, we can always find excuses. Not me. Go get somebody else. Moses tried it a lot before he got to the say, okay, I'll do it. I'm busy. I'm I'm happy where I'm at. For all of us, the issue is not our personal desires, but how are we going to respond when God leads? In the truly tough stuff of life, we rarely get a notice in advance that it's coming, which is probably a good idea because if we did, we might run the other direction. But in those moments, we discover what we really believe. I'm not surprised Silas sang in prison. Some of God's best work gets done in prison. John Bunyan went to prison for preaching the gospel. Out of that experience came Pilgrim's Progress. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on to prison in World War II. He dies testifying to the grace of God, but he's influenced millions. Chuck Colson goes to prison and God gives him the vision for prison fellowship. I wonder what Silas prayed that night. I wonder if it was something like what Paul wrote several years later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us by his, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. When Eugene Peterson took this text, he, he, he rewrote it, you know, as only the message can do, added verse 15, and it goes like this. So, friends, take a firm stand. Feet on the ground, head high. Keep a tight grip on what you were taught, whether in personal conversation or by our letter. May Jesus himself and God our Father, who reached out in love, and surprised you with gifts of unending help and confidence. Put a fresh heart in you. Invigorate your work. Enliven your speech. I like that. Take a firm stand. Feet on the ground. Head high. Even at in midnight in the prison. We all need that. And at midnight, we got to keep a tight grip on what we know to be true. Because if it's true in the bright sunlight of noon, it's just as true in the darkness of midnight. So perhaps they prayed for courage. Perhaps they prayed for a fresh heart to be made strong that they could bear witness to the Lord. But at midnight, you've got to keep a firm grip on what you know to be true. John Piper said, The universe exists so that we may live in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is more precious than life. Jesus is more precious than life. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does provide the framework for an answer that's going to be strong and true in the hard, difficult days of life. Because when tragedy strikes and life just kind of caves in and, and our plans get dashed, you're going to find yourself in a place you never wanted to be, and then you're going to discover what you really believe. Until then, it's all theoretical because you discover your theology at midnight. Anybody can sing King of Kings or He Never Failed You Yet. When life is good and you got money in the bank and your marriage is strong and your kids are doing well and you're happy in your job and you just love your church and all is right in the world. If with Paul and Silas you can sing it at midnight in jail, then you have what is real. Not only will you discover what you believe in times of trouble, but you know what? That's also when the world will discover what you believe. Either God is enough or he isn't. Either Jesus is more precious than life, or he's not. And the truth will come out either way. And in those moments, we just rest our weary soul on the God of the universe. And when you cry out to Jesus, you will discover he's there. He really is there. And he's been there all along. And everything he says has turned out to be true. 
And the people who watch you will see that you really do believe what you say. And having seen the difference that Jesus Christ can make in the worst moments of life, that's when they want what you have. And so Silas is, is kind of a behind-the-scenes guy. He's meek in, in the truest sense of the word. As God led, he followed completely. And he sang in jail with Paul at midnight. And he taught us, just go where you're sent. Stay where you're put. And give whatever you've got. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And your mercies, they endure forever. And we thank you that, that we know what you're doing. In every situation, we can trust you. Because so often, we're just clueless. But we rest our souls on you, the rock of our salvation. So give us the confidence to believe that you who began a good work in us will finish it on that day of grace. So let us bear testimony to your faithfulness at midnight and help us to understand truly who you are, that our theology can be real no matter where you lead on the waters of life. In Jesus' name, amen.